Do you know what I've always told Ellen? That you're a prince in disguise. You did? I said your father was Emperor of China. Your mother an Indian queen. It's true, Heathcliff. You were kidnapped by wicked sailors and brought to England. But I'm glad they did it. Because I've always wanted to know somebody of noble... Birth. Hello, and welcome to The Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Arathlin. I'm David Daw. And this week, we are continuing to watch the 1939 nominees, but have yet to hit any of the really good ones, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> and this week's movie is Wuthering Heights. Starring, uh, what the hell is his name? Lawrence Olivier. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> David, uh, how, how how did you feel about this movie? Um, so first of all, I really understand why this movie's Wikipedia page says the film is rated G in New Zealand. Because I too struggle for things to say about this boring ass movie. <laughs> is it not rated G here? I guess not. I guess it must be rated something else in America. One of the things I struggle with about this is how much does this suck because Wuthering Heights just kind of sucks? And how much does this suck on its own terms, you know? Yeah, and unfortunately I can't answer that question, at least not informedly, because I've never read Wuthering Heights because it's a bazillion pages long. And maybe I'm being a jerk to judge Emily Bronte by her sister, but I hated Jane Eyre. I mean... Heathcliff is the canonical that hark a vagrant comic about the Bronte sisters. It's, <laughs> it is the canonical you just like alcoholic dickbags. Yeah. I went to the Wikipedia page accidentally about the full novel. I tried to read Wuthering Heights once, got like 50 pages in, read the Wikipedia summary and was like, oh yeah, I'm not for me. But I do know that one of the reasons this movie is only an hour and 40 minutes long, although it feels much, much longer, is because there's kind of a whole second half of the novel. Heathcliff and Catherine have kids, and those kids have their own fucking drama. It ends essentially the same way, but the meaning of that ending is kind of more ambiguous and different. It ends with Heathcliff dying tragically, question mark, pining uh, for Kathy. <laughs> But they both have children with their respective spouses, and those kids have their own drama, and it becomes about the way that trauma and abuse fundamentally break people, because Heathcliff is a fundamentally broken person, which this movie does not understand at all. My biggest issue with this movie is that we are told over and over again that these characters have certain qualities which they never demonstrate or we have no basis for. Like, Heathcliff is a fundamentally broken person because one time the older boy in his adopted family pushed him to the ground and threatened him with a rock. There's a lot more abuse that actually happens in the book. We're also told that Kathy is the most lovable and utterly irresistible woman on the planet, and yet she demonstrates absolutely nothing to lead us there. And they very specifically say at one point that, you know, it's not just about the fact that she's pretty. And I'm like, I've never seen her read a book. They show her embroidery at one point, and it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> like, why? I mean, I think it is that they compress so much 
that like, yeah, there's one scene of Heathcliff having anything but a pleasant childhood, but then inexplicably everyone is like, you're just garbage trash. That like after this big scene where the dad is like, everyone is equal under the eyes of God and you have to learn to be generous to poor people. It's like Kathy seems to internalize that for a scene and then become incredibly classist like everyone else in the movie. Similarly, what must feel like her really wrestling with difficult issues in the book just reads as her changing her mind for no goddamn reason every 30 seconds. Yeah, I definitely felt that way, particularly about the class stuff. Yeah. Because she in no way felt to me like she was tortured about this situation where she was upper class and the boy and then eventually man that she was in love with was an orphan that they found outside who apparently is like possibly Romany or some kind of dark skinned person in the book, which they again talk about in the movie. But Laurence Olivier is not either of those things. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that happens is all the time jumps are so weird because this movie wants all the big dramatic moments. And so there are all the declarations of like, no, Heathcliff's never coming back. Never. I can feel it. Cut to, it's been three years, I have a daughter now, and I like knitting. Heathcliff's back. What? Holy shit! That where it's like you don't have any time to think he might not come back. It just seems insane that she thinks he won't come back. Yeah, and the time that he runs away in the middle of a storm and she goes out to find him and then he never comes back. Apparently in the book, that's because she says that it would degrade her to marry him. And he overhears that. Not that... He runs away, she goes out into the storm, and he never comes back, and it's like, well, nobody knows why. (laughs) Yeah. Like, the thing that makes that weird is that that scene is from her point of view, and so the servant just makes all of these weird jumps in logic of like, I think Heathcliff must have heard our conversation, but only the parts that would make him feel bad and run away. And he must be running away. Where it's like, why would you think that? And not like he went to go get some eggs. Like, why? (laughs) (laughs) He went to go get some eggs. That's such a very specific thing. Like, most people go out to buy milk and never come home, but not eggs. (laughs) I I mean, I guess... We should do the plot. I guess we should do the plot. Yeah, I guess. I don't feel like Wuthering Heights is quite as obvious as some of the other ones that have been based on classics that we've talked about. Yeah. It's not Romeo and Juliet. Like, a lot of people haven't read Wuthering Heights. So there's this framing device where a guy goes to, like, a spooky mansion and meets Heathcliff as an old man, which means a man in his 40s in this. To be fair, it is like 1801. Well, it's supposed to be the 1850s, which is a big deal. That the movie is set in the mid-1800s rather than early 1800s, like the novel is set. Right. But it doesn't fucking matter at all. No. The framing device is just like, Heathcliff is like a mean weirdo, (laughs) and everyone in this house is like so creepy looking. And, like, the guy asks to spend the night because there's a terrible storm out. It's a blizzard. And his window blows open in the night. And he can hear someone calling for Heathcliff and saying they're Kathy. 
And he goes like, hey, I thought I saw a ghost, but like, that's crazy. There can't be a ghost named Kathy. And Heathcliff's like, get the fuck out. I'm losing my mind. And goes and like, stares out the window. And then the housekeeper is like, let me introduce you to the actual plot of this film, which is Heathcliff's entire life story. Yes. And it began 40 years ago when Heathcliff is adopted into the family of... Mr. Earnshaw, just this guy who has a daughter named Kathy and a son named Hindley. Um, and both of them are kind of spoiled, but the dad gives them a speech about not being spoiled. And Kathy briefly takes that to heart, whereas Hindley decides to just become the worst person on earth and hit Heathcliff with a rock in the head and claimed a bunch of false stuff about Heathcliff. And in the novel, there's a lot more abuse, but in the movie, Heathcliff just immediately loses it and promises lifelong vengeance against Handley. I I think the feeling is mutual, though. I mean, for sure, but it also is, like, based on nothing on both sides. It's like they had a kid fight. Yeah. It's like a couple episodes back, I talked about the, like, pushing a kid off the trampoline thing in Boys Town that happened to me as a child. And it would be like if I, at my age, was still in a nemesis versus nemesis lifelong vengeance vendetta with that kid. (laughs) And still had a couple years to go. Anyway. Yeah. We then have our first time jump to when they're all sexy teens. And Heathcliff and Kathy have fallen in love from their, like, childhood game of playing make-pretend that is extended into their teens. Hindley has become even more of a shit. (laughs) This is where Kathy starts doing her thing where she vacillates between being wildly in love with Heathcliff and caring about nothing else in the entire world and then going like, actually, the class barrier between us is too large and can never be filled, seemingly at random. And in one of these seemingly at random shifts, she decides she wants to dance and hears music from a nearby party. Which Hindley has gone to, but she hasn't, which is really like, right? why? Yeah, <laughs> And the answer to why is so they can whimsically sneak over the wall and then immediately unwhimsically get attacked by dogs that bite Kathy's leg. Yeah, and it's real fucked up, that scene. For sure. It's probably the only time in the movie where I felt any sense of, like, there were stakes. Because this dog was, like, tearing her leg apart, which apparently had absolutely no lasting issues. The lasting issue it causes is that uh, everyone in the party immediately blames Heathcliff because Laurence Olivier looks so much like a gypsy that they all immediately (laughs) judge him. And they use that word a lot. Like, constantly. In ways that are were at first confusing to me, because I was like, are they just throwing that word around to meet him that he was, like, poor and they found him outside? And then I looked in the book and apparently, no, he's, like, supposed to look like he's actually Romani. But in the movie, they just throw this out the way that they would say, like, asshole or something. Yeah, it seems like what the makeup job they did for that was putting more gel in his hair than you might expect. Yeah, they do have some kind of, like, snotty remark about, like, are you gonna brush your hair? And it was like... I mean, no, his hair looks amazing. Yeah, for sure. He has straight up like James Dean hair and then they ruin it. Anyway, he runs off because he's 
honestly because he needs to run off for the plot. A hundred percent that, yes. There are supposed justifications, but it all happens so quickly and seems so bizarre. Later on, there's it's like a shorter time jump. Heathcliff has returned again, and he is now a servant. This part is very confusing to me, because it's like, why even do this time jump? Because really nothing changes. I guess the time jump is there so there can be time for Kathy to meet the dude that she eventually marries. Right. Otherwise, it's like Heathcliff goes out vowing that he will get rich and become somebody that Kathy can love, and like, that he hates all of this and all of you. And then it's like, anyway, then he comes back and he's a servant again for a while to them. To Hendley. I mean, I guess it's there to show that Henley has become an alcoholic, but that has absolutely zero effect on the plot of the movie. For sure. And it still feels like it's weird and comes out of left field when it becomes plot relevant later in the film. I mean, I would argue that it never really does, but whatever. Yes, you could totally retcon the... Anyway, Heathcliff and Kathy continue to do this weird on-again, off-again, never-really-on-again thing... Heathcliff freaks out and slaps her several times, which is where any hope I had that this movie might pull out of the tailspin it's been in since minute one is completely demolished. And I'm just like, well, now we're just fucking doomed. This movie will not come back from this. You know what, though? I was so utterly detached from the whole film at that point that I was just like, well, I mean... Nothing is good here anyway, so what's this going to knock it down from? That's very fair, (laughs) but it is- I mean, it was terrible, but it definitely, like, ensured that we were going to give it a bad score, but it also just, like, didn't even land with me. I was like, yeah, okay, now he's slapping her, whatever. Right, and, like, the movie treats that as, like, this unforgivable thing for all of three minutes, because this is where he runs off- And then this is weirdly, immediately after hitting her, is the most direct declaration of love for Heathcliff Kathy ever does in the entire film. Because of course it is. Right. Where she's like, we are one soul, and like, I don't just love Heathcliff, I am Heathcliff. And it's like, I mean, you're really not, lady. That was a weird thing where she was like, don't you see, I am Heathcliff. And I'm like... Are you? Not really at all. (laughs) In what way? Like, this is some real fucking common people shit. (laughs) That is the weird thing about the speed of this thing is it feels like Kathy is slumming it for fun with Heathcliff, which I don't think is the intention at all, but is like what it comes off as being. Yeah. Because there's no justification for when she does and doesn't love Heathcliff and when she does and doesn't care about class and status. And so you just end up going like, I mean, I guess she just likes Heathcliff until it's not fun anymore, because otherwise, why is she doing any of this? Right. Anyway, Heathcliff conveniently only overhears the part where she's like, Heathcliff sucks the most in the world, and that's why I want to marry him, because I also suck or whatever. (laughs) He overhears the part where she's mean to him and runs off into the night for the... I guess it's only the second time, but God, does it ever feel like the seventh She runs out and goes like, he'll never come back. Never, ever, ever. I'll never see him again. Cut immediately to the next scene where she's gotten married and has a kid and somebody's like, Heathcliff's back. Yep. This time Heathcliff actually has gotten rich by question mark, question mark, question mark. America. He went to America. Right. That's all it takes. I wish that were true. Yeah. 
he uses that money to buy up Weathering Heights. It's such a weird and terrible revenge. Like, we can continue to torture Hendley, but only by letting him live there. Right. Without paying rent. Yeah, and giving him all the alcohol he ever needs to drink himself to death, which takes a long-ass time. Yeah. Hindley being good at nothing is not even good at drinking himself to death. <laughs> That's dark, but true. That's <laughs> And for some reason, this, of all the terrible things Heathcliff does, is the thing where everyone is like a black spot on your soul. You've let a man live in a house without rent and given him alcohol. And it's like, not hitting the woman he loves? I mean, I thought the thing that makes it the absolute end, though, of anyone having any respect for him is Isabella. Yeah, that is very true. But, like, weirdly within the narrative, no one seems to give that much of a shit about the Isabella thing. Well, except for Kathy. Honestly, Isabella's like, you seem really attached to the idea that Heathcliff is obsessed with you in a way where maybe you actually just want Heathcliff to be obsessed with you. Seems like a pretty good and accurate burn, while Heathcliff is in fact obsessed with Kathy. (laughs) Kathy has a sister-in-law named Isabella. Isabella immediately falls for Heathcliff because question mark, question mark, question mark. I mean, I guess just because he's rich and looks like Laurence Olivier, which honestly is a better reason for two people to fall in love than any two people in this entire movie. Yeah, I mean, it's a reason. Yeah. So there's that. (laughs) But Heathcliff is very clearly just doing this to make Kathy jealous. And it is incredibly super shitty, but within the narrative, everybody keeps telling Kathy to calm down. (laughs) No one seems angry at Heathcliff or to even notice this is a shitty thing, because they're so busy thinking he's really shitty for buying a manor house from someone. And letting them continue to live in it. Let us please put that. It's not like he kicked him out on the street from his ancestral home. He was like, yeah, you can just stay here and keep not working and just drinking all day. Yeah. Which, like, somebody could argue that that was actually the nicest thing he ever did. Yeah. There's another ambiguous time jump where Heathcliff and Isabella have gotten married because apparently the Arrested Development-esque series of escalating dares (laughs) did not break off before they got married. Isabella is miserable because she has to live with, uh, what's his name? The drunk drunk brother. I mean, also because, like, she has finally figured out that Heathcliff doesn't love her, but what's weird is that the thing that seems to be torture is having to live with this alcoholic who mostly just talks about how much her husband sucks. Which he does, so... Yeah. Anyway, then Kathy's dying of Act 3 wasting disease. Dying of Princess Amidala not wanting to live anymore. Yes. The plot springs back into action so that Heathcliff can go and freak out about how his true love, Kathy, is dying. Which is awful because you're like, are they? Are they in any- were they ever true to each other? Were they ever in love? Why is this a- I- yeah. I don't know. Who cares? <laughs> yeah, because then she dies and her love supposedly transcends the mortal plane because she comes back as very specifically not a ghost, but her love stronger than time itself. Blech. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, a ghost? You're describing a ghost. So a dead person's spirit animated by emotion or a ghost, as one might call it? Yes. 
Anyway, the one time the one rando from the framing device saw her out the window is apparently enough proof for Heathcliff to know, finally, after just sitting and staring at the fire for ten years, that Kathy does eternally wander the earth, seeking a moment where they can be together, and wanders out into the blizzard and dies, so that they can be ghosts forever wandering the moors. Not ghosts, David. (sighs) the incarnation of their love that is eternal and also in the shape of their mortal bodies right but like they're not a ghost right but like they're dead right like just to be clear (laughs) oh they're totally dead everyone's like they're not dead their spirit of love lives on forever and it's like yeah but like his body is lying in the moors somewhere right that like (laughs) i just want to be clear (laughs) because i want to know he's dead (laughs) yeah i think i think we can pretty safely say they're both dead yeah like i say the novel ends similarly but goes on way way longer and adds a lot of ambiguity to the fact that heathcliff is an asshole driven by vengeance that maybe isn't capable of love and that kathy maybe is more interested in some other things in her life than in Heathcliff. And they have kids, and those kids are affected by the trauma of their parents, and have their own shit going on. And so they get to live on forever now is more a, like, they get to escape from the pain of the mortal plane, which sucks for everybody, and less their love has animated them into this weird heaven they get specifically where they get to wander the moors together forever which is just weird because why would you make these two fuckers one of the grand romantic couplings of all time they're both terrible people (laughs) you know when the movie started and it was like very very gothic in tone i thought Oh, God, really this? Because gothic storytelling is hard to get right. And I actually just came off of reading a four book long neo-gothic series, which is really good. The first book is called Shadow of the Wind, and then you can find the rest from there if you want to read it. So it's very, very clear in my mind, like the ways that that can go wrong. It can't be played with that level of melodrama, I guess, because like the powerful thing about a really strong gothic novel is that this is just the reality for them. And the whole framing device is like a dark and spooky night where there was a rainstorm outside. And then like the maid sits down to tell him the sad and tragic tale of Kathy and Heathcliff. And I was like, okay, well... At least this framing device is going away and, like, everything's going to get better. And then it really, really didn't. Aside from the framing device at the beginning and end, it actually never really got to any sort of gothic story at all because all of the stuff about abuse and the darkened people's souls and how, like, if you torture a child, you ruin them for generations. Well, them and their offspring for generations. Yeah. I mean, it is definitely a trope in gothic fiction that the woman love interest especially if they become involved with one another as children is never as developed as 
the male protagonist, uh, that she is a fantasy that he is pursuing and that she is kind of ethereal and something that he is chasing that he can never quite attain. I'm thinking of like great expectations, you know? Sure. But the reason for that is that the existence of her and her perfection lives in him and not in reality and that's part of the tragedy is that he never sees her as a real person and becomes obsessed with her the way that somebody would with like a religion or a cause but kathy is like a little bit all too human and also boring right like i think one of the weird things is kathy is not really underdeveloped versus heathcliff because heathcliff isn't developed either no no and his obsession with her is like okay well there are other books where these people fall in love as children and then they're obsessed with each other for the rest of their lives and it's like yeah but you get a feeling for why that is and his pursuit of her is like why yeah and in great expectations that i imagine in wuthering heights the book because it does actually deal with the class stuff other than just oh i'm rich i can't marry you oh that sucks bye That that class system causes a really serious and never able to close wound in that person of lower class and lower status, and that this woman is the representation of achieving that status that has been denied from him. None of that comes through in here at all. No, and I think it's basically entirely the script. The script is just a disaster. Yeah. I don't think these are the single greatest performances we've seen. It did kind of a joke about Laurence Olivier being overrated, if only because greatest actor who ever lived is just going to be overrated. But he does fine work in this movie. I think a better script. He would have been a perfectly good Heathcliff. The few moments where they kind of hint at Heathcliff being fundamentally broken, I think he does good work. But there isn't enough there to latch onto. People keep making these gothic pronouncements that seem like they come out of fucking nowhere and then never go anywhere. Right. Like the most gothic thing is that people will do these prophetic like, and the, all the vengeance and pain you bring will come back on you tenfold. And then you get to the end of the movie and you're like, wait, did that ever happen? Was that just supposed to be Kathy dying? Mm-hmm. Same with Kathy just declaring she'll never see Heathcliff again. And then Heathcliff comes back in th- under three minutes of screen time. It hits all the beats of gothic storytelling, but like doesn't actually earn any of them. It just seems like, well, a creepy old woman with a gaunt face has to tell you that vengeance will destroy you. I mean, it doesn't have to actually destroy you and you don't have to really be all that vengeful. It's just a creepy old maid has to say that. Right. The the whole movie feels like that of like, we got to have the rich kid hit him in the head with a rock. We got to have them like have a childhood connection that it's just like we got to hit all of the genre beats and then do nothing with them. <laughs> it feels like a wireframe, you know? I spent a lot of time watching it and thinking, I wonder if I were like a giant Wuthering Heights fan in 1939, if I would watch this and feel satisfied because I could fill in all of those blanks, or if I would be frustrated because it didn't do the things that the book does. And again, I'm saying this as someone who hasn't actually read the book. I mean, literally, it looks like half of the book isn't here. Yeah. And I cannot imagine that being satisfying to a like Wuthering Heights super fan. Well, and I think of A Tale of Two Cities, which is actually, a, I think is a much longer book, which managed to like hit all of the plot beats of the actual book 
and tell a story to people who didn't have the other information to fill in the blanks. Now, granted, Dickens was writing a serial and was getting paid by the word and all those usual cliches about him writing overlong, but it was a much stronger script for getting that across. I actually, I think it was in January, saw the four-part, eight-hour movie of War and Peace that was made in the USSR in the 60s. And it made me realize, if you're gonna take on a book that's that big, just fucking make an eight-hour movie. Just do it or don't do it at all. (laughs) I mean, in three weeks, we are going to watch a a three-and-a-half-hour movie with an intermission. Oh, Christ, I know. (laughs) I'm gonna eat my words. (laughs) But, like, so one, that. But two, like, you're allowed to do that. Yeah. This doesn't need to be a tight hour 40. I mean, maybe not eight hours. (laughs) Right. But like in 1939, you are allowed to film this as a big sweeping epic that is extremely long. Yeah. Your two options here are if you're going to make it an hour 40, just go all in on making this a grand romance and don't do all these weird Wuthering Heights beats about prophesying the other half of the novel you're not even going to film. Or... (laughs) Film the whole thing. Or whoever the screenwriter was for A Tale of Two Cities, call that person up and be like, hey, can you adapt this novel? Because you're good at that. Let's make very sure they didn't do that. They did not. Okay. Which is good. No, W.P. Lipscomb was the screenwriter for A Tale of Two Cities, and Charles MacArthur and Ben Hecht were the ones for Wuthering Heights. I have no idea what else they did. Uh, This is looking like the first credit for the first guy, and then Ben Hecht worked a lot with Ernst Lubitsch. Oh, fuck that guy then. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, not a huge fan. And speaking of not a huge fan, let's rate this movie. Oh, man. Actually, Ben Hecht wrote Viva Via. Oh, yeah. Fuck that guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, let's rate this movie. Uh, two? I'm gonna give it a three because of the cinematography being vaguely interesting and the performances being okay, but I have no objection to a two. I actually was giving it a two because the cinematography was interesting. Yeah. Like... <laughs> I'll say two and a half. Can we come to a two and a half? Yeah, let's... The performances are, like, good. They're good for a different movie. Yeah, it's even hard to say that they're good because they have so little to work with. Yeah, I... Two and a half. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, two. Two. Let's just do two. Yeah, two. Good, yeah. Because being racist (laughs) against Romany still counts as being racist. Yeah, for sure. That's what I'm saying, is that, like, the 1930s has really, like, I was not fully processing this movie's racism because I was like, it's a new brand of racism. Wait, that's actually worse. Well, yeah, and it also was like, well, they're throwing this slur around, but there's no actual people who fit into this demographic who are being hurt. So, like, yeah, you know, like, it's still racism, but at least it's, like... Is passive racism a thing? Or, like, diffuse racism, I think, is the more accurate one. Because it's not actually directed at the people who make it up. It's just like, let's throw this word around. Uh, yeah, two. 
Yeah, two, <laughs> don't watch this movie. I had to scroll past four other Wuthering Heights adaptations to get to this one. Trust the algorithm on this and this alone. I literally have never seen one of the 1930s adaptations of something really famous be this deeply buried in Amazon. Oh, that, yeah, that's interesting. Be this, like, surely you don't mean the 39 one. <laughs> no one wants to watch that. <laughs> and as far as, like, things you should watch instead of this... Criterion either has recently released or is going to release the War and Peace adaptation that I mentioned, and it is totally worth sitting through for eight hours. Something else I would recommend doing, though, if you only have 103 minutes, which is the runtime of this movie, is going to the DMV without a book or your phone. Because it will actually be more pleasant. Yeah, and it'll take about 103 minutes. And more interesting, because you can at least people watch it. Like, those are real people who are fully developed. Did I already last week? I'm trying to find the runtime of a thing. Not that it really matters in this sense. Yeah, that'll save you four whole minutes to watch 10 Things I Hate About You. (laughs) A genuinely great movie that has absolutely nothing to do with this film. I just watched it again recently and was just shocked how good of a movie it is. The cast is stacked. Uh, Yeah, it is really, really good. (laughs) In no way related to this, but yeah, it is really good. I'm just thinking about how Alice and Janney has like a bit part. Like that's how good it is that they can like give Alice and Janney like four whole minutes of something to do. And you don't think, now why didn't we move Alice and Janney up the cast list? It's because everybody up the cast list was also really well cast. Apparently there is a 1992 adaptation of Wuthering Heights with Ray Fiennes and Julia Pinoche, which includes the second generation story of Kathy and Heathcliff's kids, who are not their kids together. Right. They're their kids with Isabella and whatever Kathy's boring husband is named. Right. I think Roger. Something that boring. Edward. Yeah. Edmund. It's Ed something. Or Edgar. Eh, Whatever. Yeah. And there's also apparently a two-part drama series starring Tom Hardy, who I imagine is Heathcliff, which that seems like a pretty good bit of casting to me. Yeah. But actually, I hate Wuthering Heights now, so maybe don't watch anything to do with this. Yeah, maybe watch 10 Things I Hate About You because Wuthering Heights is just (laughs) bad. That's a real possibility. We would have no way of knowing. I'm really going to go to bat for it. I'm going to, like, what if that's just my thing from now on, is that every single movie, I'm like, should you watch this or should you watch 10 Things I Hate About You? That's not fair, though, because the answer is always going to be 10 Things I Hate About You. I feel like, yes, I feel like it will just become a proxy for should you watch this movie. If it's an either or between 10 Things I Hate About You and almost any movie, even if I think you should watch it. I'm going to say, like, you should probably watch 10 Things I Hate About You instead of, I don't know, Rocky. I don't know about that. I Like, I like 10 Things I Hate About You, but I also like Rocky. I like Rocky, too. That's the point that I'm making. And by then, I would have already told you to watch 10 Things I Hate About You approximately 137 times. So... I think by then I'd be like, maybe take a one week break from watching 10 Things I Hate About You to watch Rocky. I'm pretty sure by that point you will have told them to watch that movie like 237 times. That's fair. If not more. I'm not quite sure because we do drop down into the five nominee years pretty soon. Anyway, next week, 
we are getting to the first of the 1939 movies I've actually heard of, which is Love Affair. Don't know if it's good. I really have not heard of Love Affair, but I hope it's good. I've only really heard of it because I know that An Affair to Remember is a remake of it. Oh, right, 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 right. But- Like, I don't know anything about the actual source material. Oh, fun fact, it's in the public domain. Sweet, so we can watch it for free, which means you can too if you want to take the risk. Yes, a link to it on the Internet Archive is available off of the Wikipedia page, in fact. Cool. Which is extremely convenient. I don't even need to Google Watch Love Affair 1939 like I do (laughs) every week. See, I always do movie year full movie for my search term that also works that that's like my fallback position search term yeah because i want to be angry about how hard it is to find the movie (laughs) i guess (laughs) cool so until next week this was a this was half of a book which is we have a terrible history with and continue to have a terrible history with yeah except for tale of two cities yeah which was which only had the one city but still worked out fine (laughs) Bye, everybody. Heathcliff, you must go away. You must leave this house and never come back to it. I never want to see your face again or listen to your voice again as long as I live. You lie. Why do you think I'm here tonight? Because you willed it. You willed me here across the sea.